Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. Born in the mid-1950s, Bob Gumson grew up on the bustling streets of Canarsie, Brooklyn, where, as a young boy, he loved to participate in a wide variety of sports and games with his neighborhood friends. Bob's life was fun and uncomplicated. Then, following a routine kindergarten eye exam, Bob and his family learned that he had a progressive eye disease that would render him completely blind by the time he reached his early teens. Although Bob's disability would present many challenges for him over the years, it never prevented him from having an exciting and purposeful life that has included many adventures as well as achievements such as his induction into the New York State Disability Rights Hall of Fame. In this episode, Bob, whose autobiography, In Blind Sight, was published in 2021, will tell his amazing story, which he hopes will inspire others, especially those with disabilities, to strive, persevere, and overcome, and live life to its fullest. I'd now like to welcome Bob Gumson to our show. Welcome, Bob. Thank you, James. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really honored. Well, I'm honored as well. And I'd like to start off, Bob, by asking you, where were you born and where did you grow up? I was born in Brooklyn, in Women's General Hospital in Brooklyn, 1955. And I grew up in Brooklyn, in Canarsie, Brooklyn. First two years after I was born, my parents lived in Flatbush but then they moved to the new neighborhood that was under development in Canarsie in 1957. They bought their first home and I'm the firstborn. So I've been in Canarsie there from 1957 until my family moved out in 78, but I went to college in 1972. I never really moved back to Brooklyn once I went to college, except for some summer jobs. But you consider yourself a Brooklyn boy. I am definitely a Brooklynite, and I'm a proud Canarsie citizen. I belong to the Canarsie Facebook page, and um, my heart is in Canarsie. That's so cool. There's so many people that we meet uh, are from Brooklyn. My wife was born in Brooklyn. It just seems like uh, it seems to be everybody's uh, original home. It's almost like it's the second um, uh, the center of the universe, or it's definitely a, a launching pad for so many people. Uh, somebody passes through Brooklyn at some point in their life. Yeah. And it seems like it's the place to live again. It's gotten amazing in terms of its gentrification. I have been told in to a great extent, I wouldn't recognize it anymore. Mm -hmm. When I grew up in Brooklyn, it was a working man's blue collar community and the home of the Brooklyn Dodgers. It was um, I mean, the home of Pete Hamill, one of my favorite journalists. It was a very um, everyday working man's town. And nowadays, it's 
a bit glitzy. It's got some of the finest restaurants. Housing prices have grown astronomically, whether you're renting or buying a home. There are so many fashionable neighborhoods. It's just kind of like the place to live. It's even kind of taken over Manhattan and it has its own skyline. Yeah, and you know, we just went, uh, just before Christmas time, my family and I went over to Diker Heights to see all the Christmas lights and uh, it was quite the display over there. You know, Diker Heights was where I went to junior high school. Really? So I did not live in that neighborhood because I lost my sight. I was sent to different schools that had resources for blind kids. We can talk about that as we go along, but the junior high that I went to was on 80th Street and 12th Avenue, Diker Heights, PS201. No kidding. You know, we we actually stopped in this little pizza parlor. And it was like 11 of us jammed in around this table, and it was probably the best pizza I've ever had in my life. <laughs> well, any anybody that grew up in Brooklyn and lived there for any length of time knows you can't get pizza anywhere else in the world like you can in Brooklyn. I mean, I know people will say their pizza is great in Chicago, and I know Detroit will say their pizza is great, and Kansas City will say their pizza, and there's nothing like the folding, you know, pizza that, the, the, the method that Brooklynites use, you, you get that nice chewy cheese and the sauce, and you fold your slice, and it, it's amazing, whether it's a, a round pie or a Sicilian. Yeah, well, I'm starting to get really hungry because it's before <laughs> dinner time, Bob. So before I start, okay, we'll cool it on the on the pizza. Cool it on the pizza. You know, I mean, I'm from Jersey. The pizza's pretty good here too, but maybe not. Yeah, here. that's because people from Brooklyn moved out. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> now, Bob, I want to talk about your family roots a little bit. Can you tell us about where your family was originally from and where did they settle? A little bit about maybe your grandparents. Yeah, we're all we're all Eastern European related. Mm -hmm. My grandmother on the mother's side was from Austria. Grandmother's family, she was born in America. All, all my grandparents were born in America, but their, their families were Eastern European. They, they were the first born Americans. So Grandma Rini was from Austria, Belts, Austria. Grandpa Jack, her husband, was from Germany. He's a Miller, but his name back in Germany was Mueller. And the, my father's side of the family were from the Russian, Polish, sort of um, that whole area of Ukraine that kept on going back and forth between Poland and Russia. They were from, I don't know the exact towns, but I've heard the word Ostrova um, mentioned. And my name, when I was born, my name was Gumowitz, not Gumson. Oh. Um, it came from the Russian Gumovich which I don't really know what that means in Russian, but Gomovich became Gomowitz, and my father worked with his dad, so he was always called Gomo's son. So when my father went into business and his brother as well, they changed their family names, not the grandparents, but they became Gum's son because he was son of Gum. Well, that makes sense. Now, Bob, what kind of business were they in? My dad was a watchmaker. He was an old school watchmaker. He could repair anything. He preferred working on fine jewelry, on Swiss movements, but he knew it all. Eventually, 
he went to school, learned how to work on some of the more modern movements that you have, the self-winding and all, but he had a shop with my grandfather that I went to many times as a kid, played around with clocks and parts of clocks. And it was in downtown Manhattan on Nassau and John Street, 72 Nassau, and it was upstairs and they'd get watches from contract work. Uh, some of the bigger department stores would take in watches needing repair. They'd uh, have delivery folks bring the watches early in the morning. They'd open them up, put their solvents and solutions. And then all day long, they sat at their benches, grandfather with his son, um, working face-to-face -face with their little eyepieces on, working on these watches. Wow, what a craft. I wonder what your dad and grandfather would think of uh, the fact that I don't think many people wear watches anymore, do they? I still do, but I don't know how many do because the, the phones all have the time in it. I know, I know. And I'm, I'm thinking about when, even when they, when they switched to digital watches, what they would have, what they would have thought of those. Cause I'm sure we, their craft, they must've made these, just these brilliantly intricate watches. They repaired them and, and knew them all. They, they loved the old Swiss movements. Those were the finest. I forget what they were referred to as, but there was something jewel movements. Mm -hmm. And um, later on, my father, when my family migrated in, in turn, first the grandparents and great aunts and uncles all down to Florida in the late 60s, early 70s, mm -hmm. and then eventually... My parents moved in 78, and when my father made that big move, he was about 50 years old, and he bought out a uh, retail jewelry shop, which was his dream to have a workbench in the back where he'd repaired watches, and he had a little uh, shop in Hollywood, Florida. So, Bob, speaking about your dad, I read in your book, which we're going to talk about a little later, that your dad was in the Korean War. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. My dad was a medic in the Korean War. He served over in Japan, and he related enormously to the MASH TV show. So he served over there for a while, and then... He was uh, there for three, for three uh, years, and, and I'll tell you the other part of the story that's kind of cool is my mother wrote letters as part of service to Korean veterans and their correspondence led to their first date when he got back to uh, stateside three years after he served. So about 1953, they met and they got married. They he went out on a date. Their first date was a, a fishing. My father took my mom fishing who had I never saw her on a rowboat in my entire life. So that must have been some first date. <laughs> I never heard of it again. <laughs> it, was, it was true love. It was true love. It must have been. That's nice. Now, it's you and you have a sister, right? I have a sister, Michelle. Michelle is three and a half years younger than me. Okay. Okay. Now let's talk about your childhood uh, growing up in Brooklyn. What, what are some of your fondest memories of, of those early years? There's no doubt that some of my best memories are of the street life that we had as kids growing up. 
I open my book with some real deep exploration of that street life. The kids, it was a new neighborhood, young families, every other house had a family, one, two or three kids. So the blocks up and down were teeming with kids. We could have teams of all kinds of sports, wiffle ball, punch ball, stick ball. We were always out on the street. That's my fondest memories are uh, chasing the, the um, Bill Superette, who little truck that came around with goodies for us, the many different ice cream trucks in the summertime that came through. Sometimes we even had rides, truck rides that were like the kind of rides you'd find in an amusement park. The whip would come through and the half moon that would tip you up and down. But we played games out on the street all the time. And even the parents would join some of those games at night, we'd watch the parents, the fathers play punch ball out on the street. People wheeled their TVs out to their porch and sat out and watched sports or TV uh, shows that were on at that in those years out on their porches. Life was so different than these days where, you know, a lot of it takes place indoors. We were always outside. Yeah, yeah. I remember those rides that used to come through our neighborhood. Of course, I grew up in the suburbs, but we had an additional joy, and that was the truck that used to come around spraying, like fogging the neighborhood with like DDT. <laughs> oh, I think we had I think we had that probably too. We had such such an odd assembly of people that came through. There was a truck that even sharpened knives. Women would come out with their kitchen you know, knives um, and bring them to this truck that would sharpen them. We had a pizza truck. We had a Chinese food truck it was awful, awful Chinese food. It was, it was terrible. It wasn't good. No, but people still went and got their, you know, got their food. Yeah, definitely. Now, how important was sports to you? I lived for sports as a kid. I played sports very well up to a point in my life where I was uh, losing enough vision, I would often captain a team. And um, eventually I couldn't play the way I used to play as a kid, but sports was very important to me. We played every kind of sport possible. We made up games that I don't think kids know anymore these days, games where you threw a ball off a wall and you had to catch it before it would bounce enough times to be counted as a home run. We played a game called Spud where you threw a ball up in the, you bounced a ball and if whoever had to go get it, if you called their name out, they had to roll the ball or, or bounce the ball and hit you with the ball. We had all kinds of interesting games out on the street, but sports, very important to me. I loved punch ball probably the most baseball as well, even uh, softball particularly. Um, there, was a there was a league outside of my school. There was a softball league probably when I was in about fourth grade, fifth grade, and the school wouldn't let me play sports in elementary school after a certain grade, uh, particularly not if there was a hard ball like a softball. They didn't want me to get injured. But my, my father knew how much I loved the game and how much I loved to pitch. 
and he coached my softball team and had me pitch and I used a catcher's mask while I was pitching. Uh, that's how desperate I was to play. He insisted I could still pitch if, as long as I wore a catcher's mask because he didn't want the ball coming back and hitting me right in the head. Yeah, definitely. But it, it kept you in the game, though. Kept me in the game, and and my friends kept me in the game. My friends adapted games in ingenious ways without anybody explaining uh, giving them any clue of how to do that. We'd often play two-hand touch football out on the street and they'd make me quarterback for both teams and they'd work out all these plays where they'd say, I'm going to go out 15 feet and cut a diamond straight up on an angle, put the ball up in the air, I'll be there, I'll catch it. Usually the tallest one on the team would be the one to... Uh, work out these plays with me. That's terrific that your friends did that. Now, I want to back up a little bit. You've mentioned about losing your sight. At what age did you first start to lose your vision, Bob? And, and, and how did you first discover that this was happening? What were some of the early signs? The very first indication that I had vision loss without any questions asked was when I took the eye exam in kindergarten, a uh, screening eye exam, that's a very well-known test with all the E's that were on their sides and backwards. And you had to tell them, you know, how many were on each line. And I came home that day and I said to my parents, uh, they asked me what I did, of course, in school. And I said, we had that test. And they said, how did it go for you? And I said, well, I was able to see such and such with my good eye and such and such with my bad eye. And they said, what do you mean good eye and bad eye? Mm -hmm. I guess I knew up until age six that I did have one eye that was good and bad, but I never shared that or didn't come up. And I really don't know when I first started to lose vision. So until that moment when they tested my vision and got a reading uh, and started bringing me to ophthalmologists to check out what was wrong with my eyes, I didn't know I had vision loss. So from age six on, I guess, is when I'd say we certainly knew. And it was a parade of doctors in my life for a while after that. I'd say for the better part of the next two or three years, we were searching out possible treatment in all corners of the world, kind of, from Boston and down to John Hopkins, all throughout New York City, I went from one doctor to another to another, recommended. And they finally figured out or identified the problem as uveitis, an inflammation of the optic nerve, the uvea. And little by little, even with eye drops and medicines and salves and pills and everything under the sun that was, I was, they tried to stave off the loss of vision. It still just faded and faded and faded until I'd say between six and 14, 13, 14, it was all gone. But I was considered legally blind by the time I was finishing second grade, in second grade, I'd say. So it was quick. It was very quick. The, the early, the early loss was quick. I was probably able to see headline size letters in second grade. 
how did that impact you personally as a, as a little kid? What was going through your mind then? As a little kid, you're getting the readings from other people. And um, there was always a bit of an undercurrent that there was something wrong with me or that it wasn't good to be blind or that uh, there was a lot of fear around blindness. And, and aside from my immediate family that knew me intimately, there was a sense of being cautious around me and handling me with kid gloves and um, not wanting to maybe, uh, you know, hurt me or embarrass me or, and, and some people avoided me because they just didn't know how to relate to me. Uh, the circle of my parents' friends were always fine. They knew me for who I was, as well as I said, all my relatives and neighborhood friends, but Others that weren't very close, there was always this question of, you know, there didn't seem to be there seemed to be something wrong with me, and the place where that probably had its my memory of the strongest impact was there was a lady in our neighborhood who had a son who had a developmental disability. Back in those days, they called that mental retardation, and she continuously prodded my mother to bring her son over to play with me. Mm -hmm. And I was the furthest from somebody with an intellectual disability, but I was seeing that this mother was relating to me, you know, as somebody that would be like her son. Now you mentioned about friends who were sort of helping you adapt and your family did your closest circle of friends and family, how did they treat you? Did they start to, you know, work with you to sort of uh, help you to be who you really were and not this person to be handled with kid gloves or something like that? Yes, my, I mean, my parents, my, my parents immediately around me all the time, they wouldn't put any obstacles in front of me. I think in some respect, they gave me more running room than most kids would have because they wanted to see me get wings and fly. Mm -hmm. And that is what I did. I did a lot of things that were borderline risky and I think they had to bite their tongues and look the other way. I would ride my bicycle up to a point where I really shouldn't have been riding it anymore. I, I mean, our streets were not very, very busy but they had cars on them and I would ride into the schoolyard and every once in a while I'd miss a curb or I'd, the bike would dip into the tree garden, like around the trees and off the sidewalk. I'd hit a post with the bike and I'd go falling off. So my, my parents dealt with it in a way that they wanted to see me live a life and take chances and go about uh, unabashed. My relatives, I would say, cultivated my academics. They were always interested in trying to help me to move on so that uh, I would get a good education. My mother's sister, Aunt Marsha, would play word games with me. My grandparents would bring over books that had to do with, with history and events in the, in, in the world. So I'd say a lot of folks around me just gave me embraced me to move me forward and, um, you know, really make, make it feel, and my parents used the term, 
that blindness was an inconvenience. It was not a handicap. I mean, eventually we used the word disability because I got into the field of disability rights and we took that word as our word disability instead of handicap because handicap, I'm not sure that a lot of people know this, but the word handicap comes from the veterans of foreign wars that came back from battle often with stumps and they'd put their GI cap or their, their, their veterans cap over the stump. And that's how the term handicap knows. Really? Yeah. That, so that had a very negative connotation to it. That's one of the reasons why disability, the disability community rejected that word. I don't think my parents had that in mind at all when they would tell me it was an inconvenience. I don't think they knew that back then, but oddly enough, that was what I eventually learned that the root of that word came from. That is interesting. I did not know that. I do want to mention that in your book, In Blind Sight, which really tells a lot about how you first started to adapt to losing your sight, but it also gives a, a pretty good, strong sense of your adventurous spirit and uh, some of the stuff that you got up to. I think you even, at one point, you even drove a car a little bit, right? I, I did. It has a little story in there where I attempted mm -hmm. to drive a car. I got stopped by a neighborhood police officer, <laughs> and it became a bit of a humorous situation. My my college buddy, Jim, the story is in there. We left a pub one night and he told me to get behind the driver's seat. He stood outside the door and he said, I'm going to teach you how to pull this car. You're going to help pull it out of the parking lot. Mm -hmm. And we were fooling around and his car had power brakes and power steering. And it was scary for me. Every time I hit the gas, it felt like the car was taking off. So I'd hit the brake. And after some time, a neighborhood officer stopped us and asked me, reached in and asked me for my driver's license. Mm -hmm. Didn't know I could, couldn't see because it was dark out. It was at night. So I only had one form of ID back then. I had a handicap rider pass for the buses, the Greyhound. It was a half fare card. And I had my picture on it. So I handed it to the guy and he blew his stack. And my friend, Jim, was falling, just about falling down laughing while this officer lost his cool. He screamed at me to get out of that driver's seat. And he yelled at Jim and he said, I'd arrest you guys, I'd bring you down to the station. The guys would never believe me that <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't believe it. They wouldn't believe the story. They just wouldn't believe it. I think it was that I just was willing to try different things. I was very, very adventurous that way. I give most things a try. I think I kind of knew intuitively where the cutoff point was, where things were just too, too dangerous, but that wasn't in a parking lot at night with my friend outside that that wasn't that didn't meet that 
specification. It wasn't reckless, uh, maybe, in that you weren't in the middle of uh, a busy Brooklyn street. Trial. Right. That's right. And my street at home, where I also did try one time to back a car out of the driveway, was a one-way quiet street, too. Gotcha. Now, what about day-to-day -day activities? How was that process of just learning the basics? Did you, I, I know you mentioned in the book, you used the cane. So how did you become familiar with handling day-to-day -day activities as your site began to fail? At first, I bumbled around a lot. I missed curbs. I, I developed some techniques for touching a person next to me with my elbow that was there walking with me, keep on checking back to see that I was keeping up and even with them. And eventually I went to some programs after school hours that were for, I, I mentioned that in each of the schools I went to, junior high and high school, they had support and services, even though it was mainstreamed, our homeroom was for visually impaired students bust into that school. And after school, there would be some programs that we'd go to, um, the Industrial Home for the Blind, the IHB was one of them, and the Lighthouse. And um, we began to learn skills of blindness, that we were given our first cane there, they showed us how to use it in the hallways, they'd eventually have us walk out on the street and they'd give us a couple of bucks and tell us they wanted us to go into a shop and make change and go into stores. So they they began to familiarize us with living life, you know, as a blind person. And um, we did this among a small group of other fellow blind people. So we had each other, you know, as well to uh, support each other. And those were, that was my first exposure to a cane. Now, that doesn't mean that for the longest time I didn't fold up my cane and keep it in my pocket when I was in my neighborhood or when it wasn't absolutely essential to use the cane. I, I should have been using that cane a lot earlier than I eventually did. Uh, that's all part and parcel of, you know, just denying for the longest time possible that you're visually impaired. I had one recollection where my parents were getting very concerned about letting me go out at night and walking four or five blocks to my friend's house without using the cane. So they'd say, you can go to Jeff's house, but you got to use the cane. Now there's a crust of snow on the ground. It's mandatory that you use that cane. So one night I walked out and I'm walking down my street with the cane and I hear about half a block behind me, a screen door open and close. And it was just about where I'd imagined my home and my house placed. And I just walked and walked and I used the cane. And I, I would often tell my friend when I was coming over to look out that front door for me, because that was one problem identifying exactly where their house was because the houses were all in rows and lines. So, when I got to that block, my friend Jeff was looking out the door. I turned around on his stoop and I waved. And my father, it took him, oh, probably 50 years before he admitted 
but he followed me. <laughs> wow, that's unbelievable. That's crazy. Now, one of the things I know is sports became more difficult, obviously, even though you're, you, you know, your friends were helping you with that and, and you were taking different precautions. But in your book, it's very clear that music emerges as a big, big thing in your life. Can you tell us about what yes. role music played in your life? Sure. I wish I played an instrument as a kid. My parents gave me a few lessons, but I couldn't keep the guitar tuned. So I never learned how to play an instrument. But I listened to music with the kids beginning in sixth grade, the typical AM, you know, Cousin Brucey and oh, yeah. the good guys, WMCA and all the typical and got into the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and all the big groups of the day. And um, as time went on, I just became more voracious in my appetite to experience all kinds of music. And I went to hundreds and hundreds of live concerts, whether, especially by the time I was in college. I, I started to go to concerts, I think, while I was still a, a mid-teenager or so, 16. I write in my book about having the honor of attending uh, the Bangladesh concert in 1971. Oh. That was the first big concert I ever went to. But I have probably been to somewhere between 500 and 700 concerts at least in my life. I love live music. I like a lot of genres of music. My father turned me on as a little kid to uh, it's probably my earliest uh, memories of music. He let me play with his 78s and I fell in love with Al Jolson. Ah. So <laughs> I played as Al Jolson 78s to death. You know, when I went on, I remember some of his friends brought me for a birthday present as a little kid. They bought me the Alan Sherman album, My Son the Nut with Hello Mother, Hello Father. Oh. Um, <laughs> and I still have that record. I To this day, there's a story in my book that brings people through my record collection, my vinyl. I, I still have a thousand vinyl albums. So music, my wife says, I my milieu is music. And it's all kinds. We grew up, I'm close in age to you, Bob. And we really did grow up in an era of wonderful music, like tremendous bands that were playing back then. And I remember the first record I got, I was eight years old. One of my friends gave me a 45 and it was Gary Puckett and the Union Gap. Oh, I know. Absolutely. Um, it was either, let's see, there was Woman, Woman. There was, um, they had three, three big hits and um, um, Lady Willpower yeah, a woman, woman, and I'm trying to remember the very first one, young girl. Yeah, you're good. I think this would have been if I was eight, it would have been 1966. So you can figure it out. It could have been young girl. It was that was probably their first one. I still remember too the first 45s I ever bought. I bought three at one time: Green Beret, mm -hmm. Lightning Strikes, mm -hmm. and 19th Nervous Breakdown. <laughs> I want to talk about your education. Now, you mentioned about sort of being a little daring as a kid before you went away to college. But 
you went away to college, you're away from home. So you kind of lost that home base and any of that, you know, I guess immediately or localized support. What was it like moving away to college? First of all, how far did you go to college and where did you go? I went to SUNY Binghamton, which back in those days was called Harper College. It was Binghamton, New York, which is about three to three and a half hours out of New York City, out of Brooklyn. It's along the southern tier of New York. Binghamton is 60 miles from Scranton, Pennsylvania, Hi. and it's um, an hour from Syracuse, New York. Okay. Now, what did you study when you were in uh, undergraduate? I studied, um, for other than having fun, <laughs> I maximized the use of my undergraduate years to have a grand old time, but I did end up completing two majors. I was a bachelor's degree in political science and sociology. And you ask about going away also to college. All the years I was in high school and junior high and in the room that had the supports for visually impaired students, they never taught us how we really have to fend for ourselves when we went away to college. We got a, an example of that the summer before we all went away in New York State. They sent college-bound visually impaired kids to Syracuse University to take a summer course. Mm -hmm. I failed that summer course. It was the only college course I ever failed, um, having too much fun. So when I got to undergraduate school, it was, um, let's say, eye-popping, uh, the need to gain some sense of responsibility. I had to hire my own readers. I had to put up signs around the campus, get people to read. You know, you know when you go to college, the books, they're all brand new. The professors are so glad they just got their latest book out. It's not available. Forget about Braille. It would take too long to ever put it in braille so there's no computers back then and cassettes which was the main mode of uh for my reading it would take weeks and weeks of waiting for books to be read onto cassettes so i had to hire other students and some students were great readers others were horrible readers and i had to put up with both in, in order to get my work done i remember one time it was before some midterm or some exam, and I didn't realize there was a whole couple of hundred page book that I wasn't even aware of because it wasn't available to me and I didn't know it was in the syllabus. I had to get some student to read to me. We read for like four or five hours and luckily it was my best reader. She was able to read almost as fast to me as I read on my digital reading machine that has a variable speed control. So I read books mm, oh, close to twice as fast as they're recorded. Hmm. So you hired students and I think it's, you know, going away to college, going away from home is challenging enough, but then to be faced with the problem of being able to absorb information through these books by getting readers. And of course you got to find the readers and your schedule has to be coordinated with them. And all that. It must have been uh, that and also all of a sudden just like having a grand old time at the same time. <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was a it was a challenge to keep my keep I, I knew I wanted to be there and I yeah. loved the college experience. Don't get me wrong at all. And I knew the education was important. And luckily 
a lot of my courses were engaging and very interesting. I, I learned a real lot. Now, you went on to grad school. Where did you go to grad school? And what I went to grad school in Boston University. I went to their Sargent College of Allied Health Professions, and I got a master's degree, a master of science in rehabilitation counseling. And the notion to do that master's degree dates back probably to my first serious summer jobs, um, which are written about in the book too. I worked in the summers of 74 and five when I was in undergrad. The last couple of summers I was home in Brooklyn. I worked for the New York City Mayor's Office. They called it the Mayor's Office on Handicapped Affairs. It was under Mayor Beam. And he had a program where he had youth who were disabled with all disabilities, didn't matter, physical, mental, blindness, deafness, he would get them placed in summer employment. My job was to help make sure the students were matched, the, the youth were matched with jobs and that they succeeded at the workplace. So first summer I went out and double checked on the youth and met with their employers and the youth and collected their time cards. The second summer I was on the team of placing them in, into jobs. So when I studied for rehabilitation counseling at Boston, I was very interested in opening up the world of work to people with disabilities. That was my primary interest. And not too long after I did my internships through my grad school, I ended up getting a job with the Massachusetts Rehabilitation Commission as a vocational rehabilitation counselor. And I worked with all different populations of people with disabilities. And it was my job to help them develop a roadmap and sometimes get them into training programs or assist them with job searches and the skills to seek employment and gain the confidence to go role play interviews and do anything to help them get into the workforce. So this came into view for you when you had that internship in the city. That's when you first felt that uh, that calling. That was a connection to that kind of work. It, it kind of, yeah, yes, I, I, I wouldn't exactly say in, it was a calling, but it was there as a, a base. It, it kind of, it gave me, it at least gave me the notion that I could do that kind of work and I might enjoy it. I want to continue the conversation about your career and what you did in the area of disability rights, but I want to back up a drop. In your book, you talked about some of the adventures that you had during your college years between undergraduate and graduate school. And I was astounded at, at some of the things you did. Like for instance, you tell a story about hitchhiking across the country with a friend of yours. Yes. Okay. It's this, it's the same friend who had me attempt to drive his car out of the parking lot. There you go. <laughs> yes. He dropped out of college with 14 credits to go in his last semester, and he took off to see the world. He got disillusioned with academics. Okay. He now is a PhD family therapist, and he's done great. But back then, he took off. About a year later, I'm in this 
in-between period where I finished undergrad school in December and I was going to go to grad school in September. He came back and he said, do you want to go traveling with me? He had been off seeing the world. He was a backwoods instructor for a juvenile delinquency program in West Glacier National Park. He had also worked for a program called Passport in Salina, Kansas, and he worked out in the Puget Sound with some other youth program. But then he came back and got me, and I, I took off with him on the road on the last day of February of 1977. Mm -hmm. We left from his home in Briarcliff Manor, Westchester, and we stuck our thumbs out. We had backpacks with Poligart sleeping bags and no tent. The, the idea was we either sleep out or we find some nice soul to put us up. We spent five to six weeks on the road crisscrossing America, um, uh, visiting everything from Friday Harbor in the Puget Sound, Missoula, Montana, where my Jim had a friend. We went to the Bay Area in California and slept in Golden Gate Park uh, because we had some wild incident where we tried to get matched up with roommates and the stories are all in the book and some crazy things happened to us. Um, but we ended up befriending street people and they showed us how to survive in Golden Gate Park. We went to Berkeley. We stayed at the West Berkeley Crisis Center after getting thrown off the Berkeley University campus by our own peers. Wouldn't let us long haired, these long haired hippies sleep in their dorm. We had a wild five, six weeks, but all in all, people were incredibly generous, kind, often went out of their way. I learned about the heart and soul of America. My memory of it in those days was that people were very, very beautiful and very forthcoming and always willing to help out. You know, Bob, I'm sorry, but I'm putting myself now in your parents' position. I would have been terrified to think of you hitchhiking or, or I think of my own kids and I thinking of you hitchhiking across the country and I would be terrified as to what kind of thing could happen to you or anybody who hitchhikes across the country. I know people used to do it a lot more years ago, but were your parents freaked out over this? Now let's, let's be real, James. Do you think they knew I was hitchhiking? Totally <laughs> me. Did they ever know? I, no, they did not know until after the fact. Oh, gosh. They did not know. They thought... The story was that we had Ameripasses to take Greyhound buses wherever we wanted. Okay, gotcha. That was the story that they were sold. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I know that in the book you talk about when, you, when you're out on the streets, I felt scared for you when I was reading it. I'm so glad it all worked out well and that you, you ended up really with a pretty rosy picture of how people treated you and your trip across the country. There actually was a situation where we had, we went from, I think it was Kansas City, Missouri to Independence, Kansas. I know it was a 100 mile ride. And this woman picked us up in a very nice sedan. And 
we chatted up and we talked and talked and made friends in no time. We pulled into Independence and she said, you know, why don't you guys take my car and enjoy it for the weekend? I trust that you'll bring it back to me. Nice. Would you imagine that ever happening today? No, <laughs> I couldn't. I really couldn't. But you know, you you had some just regular scary stuff happen to you. There's a lot of stories, but I just have to ask you about this one because this one really had me scared. And that was when you were actually, you went out at, at left the library after studying late one night and it was snowing and you got disoriented, right? Could you tell just a little? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That's a that's a story that will always stay in my mind. And that's why it had to be written. I used to study in a 14 story library tower building. The school gave me a corral little study room that I can go to. I think it was on the seventh or eighth floor. And I would bring my lunch. And if I studied long hours, I'd be in there till all hours. And this is during finals week. And I must have been in the library tower for, I don't know, it could have been 10, 11 hours. I wasn't looking at any watch. Maybe I didn't even have one. I don't recall. And I got out of the corral to leave. And the place was dead silent. Of course, it's a library, so it's usually pretty quiet. But I realized. I was in the building by myself. There was nobody around. When I, as I got down to the lobby, there was a barricade around the entrance to the front of the building to go to use that door. I walked around opposite it to in this hallway and I found this door and it had the bar across it, you know, the bar for uh, emergency. Yep. And I pushed it open. I stepped out, walked a couple of steps and the next thing I knew, I went skidding right off of a loading dock. Oh, gosh. And I fell into about a foot of snow, maybe even 14 or 15 inches of snow. The whole time I was in there, there must have been this huge blizzard because I tried to walk. I followed the building around to the front and I found the front door, which in my mind's eye, I knew where it was. So I headed off in the direction I thought my dorm complex would be in. And I'm walking and walking. And the, the sidewalk is so coated with snow, my cane could hardly, I had to push it in out each time to see if I was on concrete or if I was on a lawn. And one thing blended into another. And before I knew it, I was lost. And the snow was just coming down, uh, whipping all around me. And I wandered for a while and I wandered and I wondered, yeah, you know, if I'd freeze to death, I would clap my hands looking for echoes. Cause sometimes that's one way to find a building. If you clap loud, your hand, you can hear an echo off a building, but I didn't hear any. And then lo and behold, I heard the jingling of something. I didn't know what it was at first. And I stood there and tried to listen harder. What is that sound? And, and then the next thing I knew, I was almost knocked down. Just really, I was knocked down. It was my friend's guide dog. 
one of the only other blind people on the campus I write about in the book, my friend Maria, she took the dog out to relieve it at night and the dog slipped right from her because it must have sensed or seen or, or noticed me and it came out to me. That is, uh, that's divine intervention because I just picture, had the dog not gotten away from Maria, you could have. I could have frozen. I could very well have frozen. Yes. That is terrifying. Again, there's lots of stories like that in the book. Uh, I want to get back to your career again, though. You, you got into rehabilitation counseling, but then you started to get involved with something called independent living. Now, today, often you hear about independent living. You think about like senior citizen communities and things like that. Tell us what independent living means. Okay. Independent living is a philosophy that people with disabilities developed for themselves. It predates the usurping of the word by the senior community predominantly that has made independent living into a level of housing for seniors before they go into assisted living in a nursing home and the very levels of care. But independent living uh, started as a philosophy back in the 60s in Berkeley. A group of students started to attend after one fellow in particular, Ed Roberts, fought his way into getting an education at Berkeley. This fellow, Ed Roberts, used an iron lung, and they put him in the infirmary as his dorm. Word got out that Berkeley accepted disabled students. And before you knew it, some other activist disabled um, students started uh, attending, and they'd all be living in that dorm. And they, they couldn't attend a lot of the social functions and had limited classroom opportunities. So they'd hang out a lot together and they'd support each other and, and think through ways of overcoming their obstacles. And they formed a group called the Rolling Quads. And the Rolling Quads developed this philosophy that basically establishes the fact that they're not the problem. The problem is the environment attitudes, communication, physical barriers, environmental barriers and attitudes and issues around communication. And if society found ways of overcoming or eliminating those barriers, people with disabilities would be able to interact with non-disabled people equally. So the whole idea was to achieve equal access, but their point was, the problem wasn't them. The problem was out there in the community and society. So that's where independent living philosophy was born. It was born in a model that peers supported peers, that they relied on good information. They relied on finding ways of building equal access. And they knew that they needed to take this out into the world outside of Berkeley. So this was the birthplace of a movement, the independent living movement, that became the early, uh, I guess, uh, basis for what later on first became a, a paper that was written called Toward Independence, which was a movement toward 
greater access that led to the writing of the legislation in 1990 that was passed the Americans with Disabilities Act to change the community, change the environments, and make it possible for people with disabilities to interact on equal footing. That's the independent living philosophy and that's the independent living movement. Today, I'd say probably 300 or more not-for-profit organizations that are run by disabled people. That's another key to the independent living movement has uh, spawned all these not-for-profits that the majority of their boards and their management and their staff are people with a cross disability because we learn from each other. Disability taken as, as a whole has a lot of commonalities. People have lowered expectations of people with disabilities. Everybody with a disability has experienced some kind of discrimination or stereotyping or attitudinal barrier. We just find so many commonalities to share among ourselves. So these organizations that are all around the country that are run by disabled, they choose their own targets for what their priorities are, for how they want to change their world, their local world. Every independent living center is a little different and their emphasis will be a little different. Some may focus on transportation access. Some may focus on employment. Some may focus on access to leisure and, and recreation, or there was a big movement for a while for voting access. It's hard to imagine in the 21st century, but I didn't vote as an independent voter with my own ability to know who was on the ballot through a headset that will talk to me until probably about 15, 10 to 15 years ago. Really? Yeah. I always had to have somebody in the booth with me. Oh my goodness. Now, Bob, you went from a rehabilitation counselor to actually working in independent living advocacy, right? Yes. The Massachusetts Rehabilitation Commission received its first funding to start an independent living branch. And I was recruited to start a program back in 1986, I think it was. At that point, while I was still in Massachusetts, my program was to provide small sums of money to people who were at risk of institutionalization to help them avoid being institutionalized or help them get out of some kind of an institutional setting. That led to me eventually being recruited to be the lead administrator manager of the independent living program in New York, which is based in New York out of the New York State Education Department. I managed contracts with 41 organizations that we funded with uh, money that our state legislature received for independent living services. We got about $13 million, $14 million that uh, we administered. It was my job to make sure that that money was used according to the law, that we tracked the services and were able to report to the legislature and others on what that money helped to change or how many people it served and in what manner it changed people's lives. So I did that for 25 years. 
25 years. Now you have a chapter in your book called Making a Difference, where you talk about your career. And certainly you did make a difference, Bob, really, in what you did. I know uh, disability rights have come a long way, but if you had to say today, what still has to be done? There are certain disabilities that are still very much misunderstood. Mental illness is certainly one of them. And I will also say one of the reasons I wrote my book was to change people's attitudes about blindness. When you ask people uh, what disability they fear the most, blindness is often one of the first to come to mind. And I have to say, as a blind person, I mean, I don't see why. <laughs> I've lived a very full, very rewarding, very generous, blessed life as a blind person. Okay, so what else needs to, to change? Transportation is a huge problem to um, open up doors for employment. I say it in my book using blind people as an example, but it's true for all disabled folks. There are too many barriers to employment. If you live in a rural area and you're a person with significant disabilities, you're probably going to get a subsidized program that will transport you to some kind of a facility-based employment program that wouldn't exist in the real world unless it was funded because you can't get to any other place to work. Uh, there, there's no bus, no train, no vehicle unless you can drive. Transportation is probably one of the biggest barriers to employment for people with disabilities. The other area is housing. The housing market, since there are so many people out of work who are disabled and their incomes are based on social security or disability, they've been priced out of almost every housing market there is. They live in squalor, in horrible, very dangerous neighborhoods where you can still possibly find subsidized housing. So the key to getting away from that is employment. Yeah. There shouldn't be only 30% of disabled people working. These days with all the technology and supports that are out there, we should be able, it's been proven that people with disabilities can work given the right programs and service and supports in real jobs, not facility-based kind of, I always call them, they're kind of jobs that I call them artificial. Do you feel that there's going to be some more progress in this area in, in immediate years? In the future? Yeah. Okay. There's always tipping points. Mm -hmm. We're probably at one coming up. And you know what? I think one of the main next-gen contributors to the tipping point will be, will be the self-driving vehicle, mm. where somebody can program a vehicle that you can get in and it'll take you from point A to B. Yeah, when you think of what could be accomplished with those vehicles, and they are becoming a reality. It could be, and it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a game changer. Of course, we also 
even in waiting for that, we, we still need more resources and funding and direction for using the existing programs and services because I did it as a vocational rehabilitation counselor. You can, given the right um, connections and supports and, and attitudes, you can place people in jobs and train people to do certain jobs. I want to thank you for making a difference because you certainly have. And I know that disability rights are very close to your heart. Thank you for that. You're very welcome. It's been part of my hopefully legacy that I can go forward with and say that I made that difference. And I know, and I'm very appreciative in New York State that the folks that saw me, you know, in my role in government, no less, not just the not-for-profits, but I was in government and I'm not supposed to give attributes to, um, but New York, my own peers in New York put me into the New York Disability Rights Hall of Fame. And I, I am just so blessed and fortunate to have been given that particular honor. That, that will be something that, you know, every day I think about that and appreciate that they recognized the work that went into working both sides. I, I had to keep the state and state education and the, the bureaucracy happy while I was a person with a disability who lived the experience that I was supporting through funding the not-for-profits. So sometimes the two don't go together. I always say I walked a fine line sometimes. Yeah, you had a lot of years experience. So you, you kind of knew the system and uh, you learned how it worked and where it worked and where it didn't work, right? Right. And I'm going to say I've been very fortunate to translate some of that to my kids and my wife and I share a lot in common with that. Pat, I met her through my work in the field of independent living. She was on a team to develop a program in the state of New York that helped people with brain injuries who would otherwise live out of state in secured facilities or out of their home communities in facilities. She developed a program that used that same source of Medicaid money to build a program where people can develop their own plan and with supports live in their own homes in their own communities. So she did that for brain injured people That's in New York. And over the years, it went from a startup to having over 3000 people in that program. And my kids don't fall far from the tree. The, my youngest and oldest daughter have MSWs and my middle daughter is an artist and plays a lot of music. And so there are things that uh, in my life, whether it be music or my career that have really been a source of connecting me with family as well. That's great. And I know in the book how close you are with your daughters and, of course, your wife, Pat. I did want to ask you, because I know you, you make it a point to say how important your faith journey has been to you. I know as an adult, you grew closer to your Jewish faith. Can you just briefly tell us a little bit about that? Sure. When you grow up in Brooklyn, and if you grew up in Canarsie, people were generally either Jewish or Catholic and Italian. 
if they were Catholic, because the neighborhood was kind of broken in half. It was comprised mainly of Italian families and Jewish families. And I was culturally Jewish, raised very culturally Jewish. Maybe you can call me bagel Jewish, you know, Sunday morning bagels and locks. But, uh, <laughs> but I never went to synagogue as a kid, except when my grandfather insisted that I get to be a bar mitzvah. And I left everything aside again for many, many years until I started having children. By the time I had kids and we started exploring life in a synagogue, eventually somebody stepped up and taught me how to read Braille and read Hebrew in Braille. And I started to be able to read a little bit of the prayer book. And it was a couple that I met, very vibrant, very happy young couple that were modern Orthodox Jewish folks. And they made it seem very joyous to be Jewish. And between their influence and, and the help from the fellow who taught me how to read Hebrew, I took that with me into New York when we moved for me to take the job. And we ended up in a small town Jewish community with one little synagogue. We used to call it the Shul on the Prairie. Um, <laughs> and it was kind of funny because the rabbi back when I first came, he had come from Wyoming. He wore a 10-gallon hat and boots. So it was almost like the, the Shul on the Prairie. But um, I learned a lot. I attended a lot of adult studies and I learned about my religion that I never knew before. And I guess when I was 40 years old, I read my Hebrew Haftorah, my part of the Torah that I had memorized when I was 13 for a bar mitzvah. I actually read it this time with my fingers in Hebrew when I was 40. Wow. So I live in Albany. Albany has a sizable. Jewish community, and I belong to a congregation, Ohav Shalom, and I have many, many friends from that community, and um, I've gotten back into my community, my spiritual community. I, my girls have always been exposed to the Jewish holidays. Even when I was divorced from my ex-wife, we still got together with the girls and Pat. And we enjoyed the holiday meals together and sat around at the same table. You know, we were able to keep the family together that way, too. That's great, Bob. It really is. And, you know, when after reading your book, I just get the sense that really your family, your faith, your music and your passion and heart for disability rights uh, really shine through. The book also contains lots of uh, interesting adventures that you had, which leads me to my, one of my last questions anyway, is how, I'm trying to think how to phrase this. How did your loss of sight impact the person you are today? And the second, or maybe part of that question is, do you believe you would have had the same adventurous spirit had you not lost your eyesight, Bob? I don't really know that second question. I don't really know. I mean, I think adventure is inside me. I don't think it only comes from 
my experience as a blind person. I think it's just was in me. I think my family helped cultivate that. But would I have done different things or been a different person if I was sighted? I do believe, honestly, I would have. I probably would have. I don't know what it would have been. I have no clue. Um, someday I'll come back and find that out. But, <laughs> but maybe, and maybe I'll be the rock and roll star I always wanted to be, or the blues guitarist, or something like that. But I don't think I would have been the same person. I do think that there's a profound impact that blindness has had um, on a lot of my choices in life. I mean, for all I know, I could have sold stocks or been an insurance salesman. I could have been a tradesman like my dad. I, But the adventurousness, that would have been there. I would have had a yearning to do things, to explore the environment around me and the world around me and the world at large. And that still is there in me. I've done a lot of that. I'm now pretty home-based in Albany and Anna Maria Island, Florida. Yeah. And what are you, what are you up to today, Bob? I'm going to have a book signing here on February 11th. I play music with friends in the park. I'm five years playing guitar. I'm not that good. You have people in the park that have been playing 50, 60 years. I have a lot of people I can learn from. Keeps my mind going, keeps me remembering words to songs and keeping those in my mind because I'm very jealous of the folks that can set up their iPads and connect them all together and see the chords and the words and just follow it. I do admit that sometimes their singing's a little flat because they're just reading it off a screen, but <laughs> it's it's a lot easier than trying to memorize all that stuff. So you're you're living in the in Florida in the winter, and then you you're back up in Albany area uh, the rest of the year. Yes, about it's about five months in Florida and seven in in the capital region. Mm. Do you have uh, any plans for any more writing? I write all the time for my memoir writing group. A matter of fact, tomorrow night is the monthly memoir writers Zoom meeting. So I will continue to write as long as we all get together. And January now just started our fifth year as a group. So yes, I'll keep writing. I don't know. I don't think there'll be any other books, but you never know. I wasn't really, I always wanted to write a book, but it was hard to imagine that it really was going to happen. And I think COVID and finding an editor, it was just the timing was perfect to work on this. And I'm so glad I did because now I can, I can leave my story behind for better or for worse. People can read it and it'll be out there in the universe. Bob, what's the overarching message that you really want to get across from your book in blind sight? I think I have, if I can remember them offhand, three words that really stand out. Um, Strive, because it's important to be your best. Persevere, because you got to dig in and work hard at it. And if you come across obstacles along the way, overcome. 
just find ways around them. There's hardly an obstacle out there that there isn't some way of getting around. Thank you for that, Bob. And can you tell our listeners how they might be able to get a copy of your book in Blind Sight? Absolutely. In Blind Sight by Bob Gumson, it's available on Amazon Kindle and it's available in paperback through amazon.com. Thank you again, Bob. This has been a really, really fun interview and I enjoyed your book and the work that you've done uh, for disability rights. And you're just a fun guy to talk to. We've had a, a couple of conversations before this recording and I've really thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you and I hope to continue to speak with you I will send you some more of my writing just so you can see stuff that isn't published too. So I, I will keep in touch, James, and it, it has. It's been a pleasure to get to know you too. Okay, Bob. Thanks again and have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. You can connect with us on Facebook and YouTube at Your History, Your Story, or on Instagram and Twitter at YH. YS podcast. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.